Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Foz and Russ. Say hello, Russ. Hello. Uh, and welcome to episode four of series or season two. I can't remember what we called it last time. We did we settle it. Series. Did we? we yes, yeah, series. Series two. Uh, two. Yeah. The Nazi war machine, bruv. What's going on? What do you know? And what do you know about things you don't know about? I mean, that was that was a psychologically complex question. Thank one. you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. Um, I, yeah, literally nothing special. My family are out of the house, so I'm having a little chill. What did you do with them? Do you um, put them in the well, bin? I'm just going to say is that you, no one needs to look under the patio. There's nothing <laughs> there. There's... I ain't looking, mate. <laughs> you actually said that in your in my your um, best man speech for me, didn't you? <laughs> in my best man speech at my wedding. So for people who aren't familiar with uh, British wedding traditions, so the groom being me as best man, I, I was also Ross's best man as well, aren't you? And uh, yeah, so yes, I just he's my best man. He looks after my stuff for me and all that. Most you know, you know know about that. But he has to do a speech at the wedding. And what was it you included again, Russ? That I'm the man you would call if you ever needed to bury a body. I felt <laughs> really touched by that. <laughs> to be honest, I was like, you know what? Thanks, bro. I, I, got, I got what you meant. It's at the special level of closeness, isn't it? Yeah, you know what I mean? No questions asked, bro. Sometimes, you know, you're in a hotel and sometimes there's a dead prostitute. <laughs> Sometimes it is, yeah. Fuck it out. So, now what, you drink, what are you drinking? Oh. What's going on? I have got a Krakenosh. So hold you up. That looks nice dark pitch. as well, because you were just, as I asked you, you were sipping on it, that's why you... Uh, it looks what dark, like an amber. Uh, yeah, it's like unfiltered, I think. Um, this one, like, if you go into, like, the mountains on the north side of Czech, this is, like, your default beer. Okay. So it's got it's like the beer of being on mountain holiday. Uh, okay, so what is it quite distinctive or? Um, it's it's got kind of like a flowery sort of taste. Okay. Um, but yeah, like it is the thing in Czech when you go to a particular area, just the beer changes, and if you go anywhere on the north border, like on the Poland side, then everywhere it's Krakenosh. That's the beer, the one you can get. So is that what we drank on top of that Martin when Probably. we were skiing? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, that was at Snieszka, which is like on the Polish border. Yeah, that was a good time. That was man, could not wait <laughs> the next day. That that was rough. <laughs> rough on the old knees, that is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, if you're not prepared for it, it fucks you up. Yeah, I've you I've know, been tucking into my um. My wheat free options that I've got. I've got quite a few wheat free beer options at the moment. Ten so I'm on a, a Mongoza oh, premium pilsner. Organic, gluten free, and fair trade. Decent. That's all I know about it. Nothing more. It's nice. It's a nice little drink. To be fair, the gluten free stuff's actually not that bad. Where's it from? Oh. Uh, it was actually a birthday present from Carl and Lisa. 
I actually oh. meant like where which country is it from? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's got pants on the bottle, so it's not uh, here. Because we don't pants our bottles up there. <laughs> you know, when it says pants on the side of a bottle on the cans, oh. it means it's like recyclable or something. P-A-N-T, oh, not block capitals. I mean, there's like P E T. Yeah, that's what bottles. I'm thinking of. Yeah. There's like a big, on some cans, you get like a big stamp on them. I wish someone could tell us the answer to this, because I know it's a real thing. It's just, like, it's one, some countries in Europe, or it's America, it means it's recyclable, it's got, it's Pant. like, it's large, it's large, P-A-N-T, it's an abbreviation, I presume, for something. But anyway, off topic, I don't know where this beer's from, mate. it doesn't actually sell it anywhere on the bottle. <laughs> so it's free trade for somebody somewhere so that's nice it's got world beer awards gold where the fuck is it from I don't know mate I think they got them all from one brewery maybe I don't know I don't know <laughs> it just cleaned out an Audi in like Romania or somewhere yeah, I don't know but it's nice man it's really it's, it's smooth it's just a lager just a pilsner you know what I mean it's easy drinking mm. It's not nothing Is too it? fancy. You know, when it gets you uh, quite tangy. Yeah. No, mm. is that guy? Yeah, 5%. So. And then I've got some, I've got, I've got a bunch of random beers, mate. So I'm going to spend hours going through them all, but I've got a good selection, basically. Nice. Yeah. Do you like a smorgasbord of beer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. <laughs> um, so, what were you going to talk about then, Ross? What's the deal mm. today then? So last time we talked about, um, you know, Hitler's kind of first year in power, what the Nazis did with their, uh, you know, their new control over Germany. So we're going to pick up the story in the summer of 1934. Didn't someone write a so, song about that? Oh, it was... Summer of <laughs> Yeah, it was 69, man. <laughs> I always get that. <laughs> Can you imagine how different that would be? Like... <laughs> He's like in Lederhosen. So was the best days of my life. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so. The summer of 34. <laughs> Go on. That's what so, you yeah, were, so man. so yeah the Nazis have been in power for a year and a half at this point Um, and so okay at the start they're kind of limited by needing to consolidate power so like we said there was like the focus on job creation and stuff in the first year by 1934 there's no longer any sort of opposition inside Germany um the parliament has been shut down. There's no longer a function in German democracy. You know, the unions have been shut down, so there's no like workers' resistance. All of the other parties have either been broken down or fled or co-opted. By 1944, the Nazis are in control, right? And during the summer of 1934, <laughs> Hitler has kind of three big events happen for the Nazi regime. One of them wasn't a music gig. <laughs> I got my first real six string. Let's <laughs> start me um, off again, mate, because I'm fucking barely holding it to get in front. 
so the first one we're going to talk mm-hmm. about, we're going to do slightly out of order, but it's going to make sense for why, is, so Hitler's been in power for 18 months, right? And he's starting to get a bit antsy. Like, he's starting to want to do his, you know, his vision for Europe and for the German people. And in the July of 34, he gets his first opportunity. So, I think we mentioned a little bit about Austria before. So Hitler, as we've said, is Austrian, not German. Um, Austrian national identity is pretty weak between the world wars. So obviously the the Austro-Hungarian Empire existed before, but we shouldn't understand Austria in the the Austro-Hungarian Empire like the modern Republic of Austria. They're basically completely different countries, aren't they? Yeah. And a big part of understanding this is that the German-speaking Austrians did not think of themselves as being Austrian as a nationality. They thought of themselves as German. Okay. okay. So even during the empire, like German nas- the German-speaking nationalists in Austria wanted to leave the Austrian empire and join the German empire. And after World War I, the Austrian Germans wanted to join onto Germany when the Austrian empire broke up. Obviously, the Allies were not quite so keen on rewarding Germany for starting the war, as they saw mm. it, by rewarding them with extra territory and people. So they said no, and they insisted on a separate Austrian state. The German nationalists inside Austria wanted to call that country German Austria. Again, the Allies of World War One are like, no, you're not doing that. You are going to be a separate thing. Okay. <clears throat> But inside Austria, there's a strong movement of people who want to be joined back into, uh, to join into Germany. And there is a local branch of the Nazi Party. And in 1934... Why would there be a branch of the German Party in Austria? Oh, because they consider themselves Germans on the wrong side of an artificial border. So they're fully on board with, like, Nazi ideology because they consider themselves to be as German as people from from Munich or from Berlin. Anschluss. Exactly, which means union. Mm. So the Austrian Nazi party sees this as a... Like, they see that Hitler's taken power, Nazis succeed in Germany, and this is the opportunity they've been waiting for. Austria itself is not a, like, proper democracy. It's also, like, has a fascist regime. It's very anti-Semitic and so on. But it's not to say the Nazis are in power. In Austria. It is a separate entity completely. It's yeah. a separate entity, and the governing power in Austria, though very very right-wing, very unpleasant, are not Nazis. So the Austrian Nazis attempt a coup d'etat. They definitely have backing and support from inside Germany, and they try and seize power in Austria. The Austrian Chancellor, a guy named Dolphus, is killed by the Nazis. Um... And all the steps are looking there for Germany to integrate Austria in 1934. Mussolini, our man down in Italy, he of the fantastic chin. He has got a good chin, yeah. Good point. He's got a good chin. Yeah. He is less than impressed by this, and he threatens basically war. That Italy will mobilise and go to war. Remember, Germany is still heavily... Its military is heavily limited because of the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, this is it's, before the war machine really started yet going, wasn't it? So this Yeah, is, exactly. This is none of the big hitters, the tanks and the vehicles that we know were even around yet, were there? Exactly. Tigers, and the Italians. You no, know, Panzer Pans Fours. You know, none of this exists, I don't think, yet, does it? Yeah, all of this is a long way in the future. And 
the Italians, remember, have been on the winning side of World War One. There's no restrictions or limits on the Italian army. Mm. The so a threat from Mussolini to Hitler at this stage is serious business. Hitler kind of backs down his support for the Austrian Nazis and the Austrian states able to crush them and put them back in their place. Okay. So this is Hitler's first kind of attempt at upsetting the the international apple cart, trying to working with these Austrian Nazis to try and like subvert the Austrian state. It ultimately fails, and Austria will carry on for a few years yet. Also in nineteen thirty four, summer. So if Hitler has a busy month, this happens in July. Now, we'll backtrack a little bit to June. And there was also a struggle inside Germany. In Germany, you had basically two different large armed groups. On the one hand, you had the army. On the other hand, you had a group called the Sturmabteilung, or the SA, otherwise known as the Brown Shirts. Now, the Brown Shirts, the SA, they are like the Nazi street militia. So when we're talking about all that violence and instability in the 20s and the 30s, the SA are the guys going out there fighting communists in the streets, beating up liberals, that sort of thing. Yeah, like when they were just a minor party. Yeah, like the SA are basically football hooligans, okay. if they were around today. Like, if for those who remember a few years back the English Defence League, they are very much in the line of what... They were trying to be like the SA. Like having a... Like an identity and a uniform and stuff, mm. and being like far right street folks, basically. If the SA were around now, they would be football hooligans. <laughs> so there's kind of a confrontation of who is going to be the the armed force inside Germany. Will it be the army with its like you know Prussian traditions and all that, or will it be the SA, who are totally loyal to the Nazi Party? I said before, there's a few different kind of strands within Nazism. Obviously, sometimes they emphasise the national socialist side. They want to be seen as like a working class movement, a revolutionary movement. Other times, I think it's where Hitler and Goering feel more comfortable. They're more conservatives. They're aligning with business interests and elites. It's basically everything Hitler says is for the masses, and what he does is completely separate. <laughs> Isn't it? It Pretty seems much, like. Yeah. Pretty much. But the SA, they're like largely working class men and they represent a real desire for like a genuine revolution, like a national revolution. They're going to overturn society. They're going to get rid of the Jews because it's the Nazis, of course, yeah. everything comes to the Jews. But they also want to overthrow the existing order. They want to get rid of the church, the old elites, the aristocracy, get rid of all of this. A real revolution of like the purity of the German nation. That's what they're into. An interesting thing about the SA, and this is a point that the book The Vanquished makes, is the guys doing the street violence in the 20s and 30s, people often think those are like the, the veterans of World War One, right? And the, the Vanquished makes the point that actually these guys are, were all slightly too young for the war. So they didn't fight in the war, and then they kind of grew up afterwards, and then they had this like feeling of guilt, like, oh, I should have been there with my fellow countrymen. And also this feeling of shame, like I didn't do my part. Yeah, I've heard th- I've heard this before. They call it like war guilt or something. Don't know what the name that I've heard it been called before. Um, maybe I've not heard the term, but I think it, I think it's a thing. Yeah. Like you, after like a traumatic event, like a war, people who were slightly too young to be part of it, 
grow up feeling like they've missed out and they haven't been part of something they should have yeah. been. Yeah. And it is a guilt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you're right to say it's a guilt. Like, Germany was defeated and I couldn't do anything about it. Mm. Um, so anyway, so the SA is a huge organisation. I think it was like one or one to two million people. Something like that it was huge. So, But then the flip side, they're very unruly because they're a bunch of street folks. Mm. They're huge, sprawling organisation. And they also represent a bit of a power threat to Hitler. They are fanatically loyal to their leader, a guy named Ernst Röhm. And it kind of makes sense. Like, Röhm so, is... why, why do they have a different leader? That's what I don't understand. Well, Röhm reports to Hitler. Oh, okay. But it's like Hitler's the political head and Röhm is the head of like this, these street folks. Okay. And he's like a super charismatic guy. He's a World War One decorated hero. Um, Hitler can see the danger that, like, you know... These street folks might not really know who Hitler is, but they know who Ernst Röhm is. Yeah. That's the guy they know on a personal level. And basically, the existing kind of order in Germany, we have President Hindenburg, who was a World War I general and is now president of Germany, and the head of the army, von Blomberg. Both of these are like old-school Prussian aristocrats, and they tell Hitler, you need to get rid of the SA. These guys are out of control. Yeah. They go in there, like, beating people up in the streets, smashing up businesses, all that sort of general troublemaking. Hitler looks at the two options, and basically, he sees the SA have outlived their usefulness. Mm. The Nazis are in power. The communists, the other parties are suppressed. He doesn't need street hooligans anymore. Now he needs an army that can fight the French. So he basically carries out a coup against his own... Uh, street group and it's what goes down in history as the night of the long knives so beginning on the night of the 30th of June the police, the military the SS led by Heinrich Himmler are deployed against the SA and they begin targeting them they'd like arrest or assassinate the leadership something like 500 people I think die during the night of the long knives uh Ernst Röhm is a super interesting guy because he is... Some people would describe him as the first openly gay politician. Okay. So even though the Nazis are obviously massively homophobic and would later be sending gay people to the camps, Ernst Röhm was basically an open secret that he himself was gay. Okay, that's cool. And it was part of kind of what weakened Röhm's position and allowed Hitler to be able to make this move against this otherwise very powerful guy. Um... Rome is arrested by Hitler personally and he is executed. So, the one major group that could have been a threat to Hitler at this point then, so this like armed street militia representing the left wing of the Nazi party, they've been decapitated, basically. Mm. A lot of the men would end up in the army later, but basically... And the SA would kind of continue to exist, but it would never come close to being a rival to the SS again. So, then the final kind of thing that falls into Hitler's lap during the summer of '34 is I mentioned President Hindenburg. So he was a, a old Prussian general, and he had basically been military dictator of Germany in the First World War. And he became the president, but by this point he is very old, and he kills over in August of 1934. When he dies, Hitler takes the position of 
president combines it with his own position of chancellor and makes a new position Führer, which literally means leader. Okay. So he combines the two powerful offices, giving him basically absolute power in Germany. Mm-hmm. And people were down with that. There was no longer anyone to resist. Yeah, good point. There is no resistance inside Germany at this point. Oh, okay. And to kind of cap out 1934, mentioned before, like, at, at the end of the last episode, the Nazis have started ramping up the... Um, the spending on the military, the commitment of resources, right? And one of the things they're doing is because they're, you know, relying on imports to to um, generate the, like, to produce the weapons as well as produce the exports, there's a real crisis of the currency reserve. Basically, they're smashing through the money they have. They're spending way more on imports than they're making back in exports because so much of the stuff that's imported is going into making weapons, which isn't generating any money at that point. They need to find money. And one of the ways they come up with it is they begin, this is the first time the Nazis used the law to target the Jews. Now, when Hitler first came into power, a lot of Jewish people in Germany were like, oh, this is bad news, and they fled the country. Yeah. Like, sold up, cashed out, and left. One of the kind of the tragedies for the German Jews was like, you know, people think, okay, we'll leave the country, we're going to flee, we'll get away. Hitler doesn't want us, fine, let's go. But then the Nazis followed them. You know, it's like Anne Frank's family fled from Germany to the Netherlands. The army followed them. Yeah. But, so the initial the initial months of, of Hitler being in power, people were like, oh, this is a bad idea, and Jewish families started fleeing. Into 1934, Hitler hasn't really done much obviously like there's intimidation and boycott campaigns against jews it's not like to say the nazis weren't being a bunch of shit heels to the jews they absolutely were but it wasn't as bad as it had initially been feared it would be and you know if you're a jewish family which has memories of you know life under under the czar if you were living in russia before you came to germany you're like okay we've seen this before we know how this goes we can survive the, what the Nazis also did is they started applying controls on, on Jewish people leaving Germany with money. So they started applying, okay, if you want to leave, that's fine, but you have to now pay tax to on all of your stuff to, if yeah. you want to leave. So people, you know, Jewish people are like, okay, things aren't as bad as we thought they would be. We've seen pogroms and, and you know, anti-Jewish feeling before, and now they're kind of targeting the economy targeting us like you know we'll sell up and we'll lose everything it kind of lulled people to stay and this obviously going to have tragic consequences later on mm. for all of this effort though there's not that much money there aren't that many german jews so there's not that much money to scrape out of this oh, okay and in 1934 it becomes the case that all the like foreign currency reserves be, end up being nationalised and centrally organised by the government. Businesses no longer have the freedom to spend foreign currency. If they had it, they have to ask for permission to, to spend it. Um, and this, what we're going to see as kind of a trend through this episode is more and more central control of what people can do with money and resources inside Germany. All this was happening, obviously, like we talked about in last episode, I think it was all the episode before. So this is a there's not as much technology 
for information so information doesn't travel around as that easy does it mm-hmm. like it does nowadays so I'm guessing there's an effort probably made to keep this stuff a secret but how secret could you keep it in this time of age and obviously when the allies get wind of it and everybody else around it all these neighboring countries what what's everyone doing like surely yeah so I mean we said last time like the French already can their intelligence starts to see the rearmament effort even though the Nazis are trying to keep it officially a secret. By 1936, so we'll jump ahead a little bit to 1936. By this point, after, you know, the the bit of fiasco around Austria, the British and French have seen where the writing is going. So they've also begun rearmament programmes and they began kicking in uh, to revitalise the British and French militaries. Uh, both of them have been kind of a bit complacent and slackened. Although the French army is very big... It's fallen behind technologically. Uh, the British had been very innovative in World War One, and by now things have, again, kind of fallen behind. But by 1936, they really started to ramp up their rearmament. What what sort of stuff are they building at this stage, then? Yeah, so, I mean, this is interesting. Because like... the doctrine's going to be not what it is in... 1942, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Although, like, British doctrine... What are they preparing sorry. for? Yeah. So, British doctrine's interesting, because, like, in the in the 1930s, the British are really, like... A lot of the ideas we kind of associate with Blitzkrieg, like, you know, junior officers making their own decisions, every man, like, kind of operating independently, lots of tanks and vehicles. This is how the British Army is thinking in the 1930s. It just goes to shit in 1940 and doesn't work. Um, Why? Uh, basically because the army's too small, it leaves mobilisation too late, and the army gets the worst picks of the manpower. Um, Eventually the British kind of settle on a system of very limited objectives per man, everyone knows what they're doing, but there's no, like, not that much about, like, independent initiative in British doctrine and life in the war. Um, But one thing you see is, like, the scale of the British and French economies and, like, uh, defence industrial base kicking in. And there's a real technological ramp-up in 1936. So in the years before that, like, lots of countries were doing things like building their own fighter planes, right? So, like, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia and the Netherlands are building their own planes, building their own tanks. And they're basically all much of a muchness. Like, most air forces before 1936 were operating biplanes. Mm. If you're not familiar with a biplane, you think of, like, your World War One classic fighter with the two sets of wings. That's a biplane. So obviously the 1930s, ones they're technologically more sophisticated, more mature, but they're still fundamentally the same technology as World War One. And these things are relatively straightforward to build, right? They're made out of wood and canvas. You don't need huge factories. You don't need super skilled metal workers. You can build it basically anywhere. Yeah. So lots of countries are able to build their own planes in the mid 30s. In 1936, there's a real ramp up towards monoplanes, so planes with one set of wings. Mm-hmm. Like the typical World War Two plane that you'd think. Yeah. So within a couple of years, around 1936, the Hawker Hurricane, the Supermarine Spitfire, the Messerschmitt 109, these designs appear, and the like, the technology and the performance of these is so far ahead of the biplanes that the smaller economies can no longer keep up. Like the Czechs will never build a monoplane fighter. Yugoslavs and the Dutch will build like monoplanes were much less sophisticated than a Spitfire or 109. Okay. 
Um, so increasingly they're like committing resources. There's a lot of shipbuilding as well. The British have uh, four battleships they plan to build, the King George V class. Um, generally, they're building up, but the British and French don't want a war with Germany. They're pretty confident if they fight a war, they will win. But they also see it's going to be a big effort, lots of people are going to die, it's going to weaken their empires, and it's going to strengthen the Americans, the Soviets, and the Japanese. What they come up with is the idea to negotiate from strength. So they'll build a big army, but use it as a negotiating lever. Mm -hmm. And they're going to try and tie Germany into the existing European peace and security system. And part of that is going to be a policy of appeasement. Hitler wants things. We know that he wants things. Some of these things, it's not such a big ask to give. From a British and French perspective. Like, Hitler wants to unify all of the German people. There's Germans scattered throughout Eastern and Central Europe. From a British perspective, it's like, mm, yeah, well, you know, we've we've broken up Eastern European empires on the basis of the national right to self-determination of peoples like the czech people should have a czech state the you know, the romanian people should have a romanian state mm. we haven't applied this to the germans so if hitler wants to do it then okay so this is the concept of appeasement we'll give hitler some biscuits and he'll accept the new european security order and he won't cause a fuss it's also a thing what a mistake it's a maker. what a mistake it's a maker. <laughs> But it's also like, in 1936, if you're looking at it, this doesn't seem like a stu- such a stupid idea. No, it doesn't, to be fair, does it? When you think about it. You, you don't expect Hitler's going to be Hitler. You know, you, you don't think he's going to start a world war. Well, yeah, no one does really. Do You don't ex- expect that of any actual human being. So. And it's also, you compare Germany to some of the other powers around. Like, everyone hates the Soviets because everyone has decided they're dead against the communism. You know, this is the type of, like, Stalinist purges, you know, the show trials and people going to the gulag in the thousands. So the USSR, obviously, not a good look. Italy has gone to war with Ethiopia, which is generally accepted as, like, a terrible crime from everyone with no justification. Japan has invaded China by this point. By comparison, Germany has been relatively well behaved of, like, the countries outside the international system. In 1936, we also have an Olympic Games in Berlin, which had already been agreed before Hitler came to power. And Goebbels is conscious that the eyes of the world are on Germany in August of 1936. So he tones down the anti-Semitism. The anti-Jewish posters disappear from the streets. The uniformed Nazi men off the streets. They give lots of media coverage to the successful black American athletes like Jesse Owens. And it gives more of an acceptable face to Germany. Obviously, like a lot of like the ceremonial of the Olympics, like the the Olympic torch and all that, uh, the you know the big flame, is invented by the Nazis for the nineteen thirty six games. Okay. They give this impression of a you know well organized, well ordered state, all the Germans working together, and you know not having the problems of messy democracy or bad yeah. communism. So in the context. For the British and French, they're looking, good. Like, they're looking well behind. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, okay, we can do business with these guys. And obviously, to, at the time, to the British Empire, well, yeah, 
you're looking at those little bits like, yeah, those Austrians, I can get back there. Oh, that's not no, yeah, yeah, no big ask. Exactly. When you're ruling over an empire of half a billion people, you're not thinking about the rights of like one or two million people living in East or Central Europe. The yeah, idea yeah. of just like shoving people into a different country and drawing the borders, like this is why Africa has like straight line borders, like people. Yeah, true. <laughs> but Hitler, he sees things quite differently, and this is again a thing of like if Hitler was like a purely rational actor, German, and he he was purely a German nationalist, Germany could come out of nineteen thirty six in a very strong position. Yeah, Hitler though he doesn't see things rationally because Hitler believes in a literal global Jewish conspiracy to control everything. <laughs> And in 1936, there are new governments formed in France and Spain. And in both countries, you get a popular front. So a general left uh, coalition, like communists, trade unionists, socialists, social democrats, liberals, forming a broad coalition. And he sees this as a Jewish and communist conspiracy ramping up. They've taken power in France, they've taken power in Spain. Obviously, Spain will go into its civil war in 1936. Now, we already said Hitler plans to increase the size of the German army. That requires the German army taking control of the Rhineland, which had been forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles. So Hitler, in this context, sends the army into the Rhineland to seize control. The army leaders do not like this one bit. They think there is going to be a military response. But Hitler has kind of read the room. He sees the French government has collapsed. The British desperately want peace, and also that British-Italian alliance that there was over the Austria situation has broken down because Mussolini decided to invade Ethiopia. So there's no possibility of a European response. You know, there's not going to be a repeat of hit, uh, Mussolini mobilising because Mussolini is fighting and losing a war in Ethiopia in 35-36. So there is no... He does win the he war. He does in the end, he does, but it starts very badly for the Italians. Yeah. Um, as is tradition. And when when this... Are you going to talk about the Civil War at any point when you're planning to? Because I was just going to point the Spanish Civil War because a lot of German soldiers were there training, weren't they? They will be later. Yeah, I wasn't going to go into it too much, but yeah, later on, um, Hitler will use the Spanish Civil War as a testing and training ground for his new military. And there'll be a lot of valuable lessons learned in Spain. Um but yeah, so he's able to march in and he secures the Rhineland and basically nothing happens as a result. So the army was wrong, Hitler was bottled right. Bottled it. Yeah, everyone bottled it. If the French and the British had pushed back in 1936, Hitler would have been out. No questions. Mm. But they backed down. Hitler now has all of that industrial capacity in the Rhineland at his disposal. So, you remember last time that we said there was going to be, the German army's plan was to increase to 21 divisions by 1938. That's something like mm-hmm. 300,000 men. Hitler makes a new plan. Now, by 1940, they will have 102 divisions. The new plan? That's a big increase. That's a massive increase. So, obviously, Hitler has been rearming. Other countries have rearmed in response which now drives, Germany needs a bigger army. And it gets to this like, kind of dynamic. Germany rearms faster and bigger. Other countries rearm more. Therefore, if Germany wants to be able to win a war, Germany must rearm even more. Same logic happens today, though, isn't it? It's like, 
obviously slightly the the, the 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 landscapes with the war going on with Russia and Ukraine. The landscape's slightly different, but before that, Russia was in an arms race against America, and so was China. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like up. Yeah, always have been and always will be until something changes. <laughs> yeah, and especially like if you're the country that kind of starts the arms race, like to try and match the, the like the status quo power. Then it's going to drive an escalation on both sides, and if you're ever going to be able to overcome, you have to be able to outproduce. Yeah. All of this, of course, puts huge strain and demand on the resources that are needed to build up the military. Everybody needs, you know, the iron, the steel, the coal. And again, central government steps in. A new position is created, and. Herman Goering is given complete power to oversee the distribution of resources in the economy. So, all of resource allocation will come from Goering, and he is under instruction to make sure the military comes first. Goering, as we said before, head of the Luftwaffe, he has his own interests and projects as well. And between 1935 and 1938, two-thirds of all of Germany's economic growth is driven by rearmament. Wow. Yeah. Like it's... So that's sort of like fake economic growth though, isn't it? Because as soon as the mm. argument stops, then... Yeah, exactly. You're taking those resources, you're buying the inputs, and then you're making tanks that then sit in a warehouse or you know sit on a training yeah. yard. There's, there's no benefit. Yeah. It's completely a dead investment. You get growth while you're doing it, but when do you stop? And that's what we'll come to in a minute. Mm. So we see some kind of innovations with what they want to produce. They are planning to produce 5,000 tanks. Germany has been specifically banned by the Treaty of Versailles from having any tanks. Of those 5,000, 800 are planned to be the new Panzer III and Panzer IV models, which would be amongst like the most technologically advanced tanks in the world. They're also planning for 120,000 trucks for moving troops and material. Although we shouldn't buy too much into like the kind of this blitzkrieg mythology of like you know like the uh, mechanized German army, they had six hundred thousand horses, mm. and we can look at how the, the the distribution of resources kind of reflects this. We have this image of the German army with like tanks and planes and half tracks. Five percent of resource allocation went to tanks and vehicles. 32% is going into guns, artillery, and ammunition. 9%, nearly double for the tanks, is going onto fortifications, like concrete fortresses on the yeah. border. The priorities are not where you'd expect it to be. They're not building a mechanised blitzkrieg force. They're building an army with some advanced capabilities, but also reflective of a poor and backwards country. Lots of artillery, lots of horses. They're building an army to fight World War One. In a lot of ways. Yeah. But the plan is, so from 1936 in the next four years, by 1940, there will be a four million man army. Now, to come back to what you were just saying about it being a dead investment, the German army were aware of this. There's um, the guy who was in charge of administration within the army, a guy named Major General Fromm. Quote, he said... Shortly after the completion of the rearmament phase, the Wehrmacht must be employed, otherwise there must be a reduction in demands or in the level of war readiness. What does he mean? We've ramped up all these factories, we've built new factories, we've got everything ramping up to produce guns and tanks and everything. 
ready in four years. What happens next? We have all of these factories knocking out tanks and we've hit the level we want to produce. Do we keep going? But that's going to make yeah. even greater cost to keep it all going and to maintain it. Do we change those military factories over to civilian production just kind of keep the level? But that's going to cost money. And it's going to produce... Hitler thought he was getting it all for free, though, didn't he? That's the problem. Hitler... Seems like these MFBO bills, whatever they're called. MIFO bills, yeah. Yeah, once he did everything before them, he probably just thought it was all free. <laughs> well, basically, Hitler didn't care about economics. He cared about lines on the map. And it's like, yeah. the money doesn't matter. The money will come later and we'll fix it. And I think in this respect, Hitler is like Putin. And the mm. economic stuff has no impact because they don't think in money terms. They think in lines and tanks and divisions. Yeah. In 1936, though, Goering has seen seen where this is going. He orders the factories that are owned by the Luftwaffe onto a war footing. He has a meeting of German industrialists and he tells them, Our whole nation is at stake. We live in a time when the final battles are in sight. We are already on the threshold of mobilisation and we are at war. Only the guns are not yet firing. 1936, Goering already sees it germany is going to war there is no no other way around it and it's not like you know hitler taking steps and then whoops he goes crazy or whoops he miscalculates it's obvious in the mid 30s hitler wants a war the only possible outcome of all this spending and building is a european war yeah now one of the kind of critical resource inputs for this all this military building is steel. Germany has a problem. It does not produce enough of it. And the reason it doesn't produce enough steel is it doesn't produce enough iron ore. Germany has extensive iron mines. The high quality iron has been mined on a big scale, but the low quality deposits, basically they haven't been economically worth the effort. They import a lot of iron from Sweden. By 1937, they have a critical shortage and they have to start rationing who gets steel. Again, it comes to the central government and what happens is all of the existing orders from the, across the economy for steel are cancelled. Anything that's not immediately about to be fulfilled is cancelled. So the building sector, like civilian economy, everything is cancelled and the orders are reset from government. The army... To do what it needs to do for its build-up needs 270,000 tonnes of steel every month. They get 195,000. So that's like... That's such a shortfall. Yeah, that's like, what, nearly 30% shortfall, isn't it? This is, a, that's a, it, this is all to do with a big point, like, about with German machinery. Like, in, in World War Two stuff, like, everyone loves the tanks. Like we all do. Yeah. Anyone who knows about German, anybody who's got a fan of World War Two tanks, everyone knows German tanks are cool as fuck. <laughs> they look really cool. They're like, you know, look, you get creative shapes, look mean. They look, they're cool pieces of kit, but they had a massive problem because they had to cut corners on the production to get them out because there wasn't enough stuff. Yeah, everything. Cheapness of alloys. They didn't have the materials they needed. Yeah, exactly. Everything Germany builds means they don't build something else because there just isn't enough stuff. So already they're, they're in 1936, 1937, so they're one year into the plan. They're already on like, I don't know, it's like 25% shortfall or something like that. And right. the armament states that they've planned for begin slipping. There just isn't enough material. 
The war ministry informs Hitler that yes, we can have 3 million men ready in 1940 and trained, but they will not have any weapons. Mm. Hitler turns again to his man Goering, you know, the happiest man at the buffet, to fix the problem. He's a big fat lad, I know. He's a big lad. And Goering sees an opportunity. He comes up with a plan to build the biggest steel works in the world. He's going to use the resources of the German state to build what he modestly names the Reichswerk Hermann Goering. Nice. I like how he put his name in yeah, there. Very humble. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> this steelworks is planned to be so big as to produce as much steel as all the rest of Germany's steelmakers combined. But how are they going to get the iron? Well, Goering called a meeting with the major industry leaders, like, you know, like Krupp and all of these guys. And Germany's uh, iron ore comes out of the Ruhr region, right? And so all of the steel makers, they have their iron mines in the Ruhr. He summons the industry leaders and he hands them maps of the Ruhr. And it shows all the iron mines and it shows which mines they are going to sell to him. They have no choice in the matter. They just got to say, "Okay, I've solved this to you now." Okay, I sign here. By nineteen forty-one, this would become the single biggest industrial conglomerate in the world. The other German companies would have to go and start exploiting the lower quality iron deposits, since they've basically been forced to sell their good mines to Göring. Oh wow! Uh, but it, this doesn't really fix the problem. And kind of the next step is that steel allocation from now on until the end of the war is by Hitler personally. Now, can you imagine this? The head of state of the country is personally deciding which factories get steel. Yeah. Like, it's fucking insane. So basically, I bet he gets a bunch of things in front of him and goes, what do they make? This. No, we don't need that. What do they make? No. Okay, I want some of that. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, if if you want steel you just have to go and make a really good fucking powerpoint presentation to hitler yeah and it's like the last thing that comes in is what he does it's like he doesn't really stick to strategic forwards well whoever is really convincing can mm. get it like th- this is a real f- a thing with the nazis it's like there's no long-term forwards whichever sounds good at that exact moment is what they do Gaze was off his head. <laughs> Absolutely off it. There's a reason why he was so off his head, though, weren't there? Like, he was well known for the amount of drugs he was plied with and taking. <laughs> like, not just like drugs as in like aspirin and stuff. Like, he was taking yeah. hard drugs on a daily basis by this point. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really well documented. Um, so, he had his own personal physician. Oh. And the guy's name is, I've got it written down here. A Theodore Morale. Give him a okay. give him a Google. Uh he's he's an interesting character. So he's Hitler's personal physician. And Hitler liked him because he was really good at treating syphilis apparently or something <laughs> like that. Like he was like wicked with syphilis. And then right. but Hitler would well, being Hitler was like syphilis is like a Jew disease. So like he thought this geezer was a genius for like helping get rid of a Jew disease. So he might really? be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Fuck he was, hell. it was Hitler, and it like obviously yeah, fucking, you know, fan of him is a. It's uh, honestly mad how like everything in the man's head comes down to the Jews. Like mm. it doesn't matter what it is, everything. 
Yeah. So he was like, he was plying with all, like, cocaine, fucking, he, he took, he had daily uh, steroid and hormone injections, testosterone injections. So he was having daily? testosterone, yeah, daily, daily testosterone injections, daily, he was having everything like vitamins and all that as well, as injections, as well as cocaine. Uh, <laughs> what else did he have? There's another like real hard drug that he was on regularly. Amphetamine. Oh, well, amphetamines goes without speaking because the Nazis and they were like, yeah. <laughs> they're mad that, for them. They, they loved it, didn't they? They were guys. They would have loved the Manchester club scene of the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were big into the fet. Um, he was opium as well. He took opium. Yeah, he was on the opium. He liked that one. But they, this was like a daily occurrence. It was prescribed to him. Um, and there's rumours uh, that he often showed signs of Parkinson's disease. I've seen that. Like some of like the video footage of him at the end of the war, like he's holding his one hand to control the shake. Yeah. Um, I mean, the man's on like like coping opium on his post. Yeah, daily. He must have been like just times today where he's just zonked out. Like. Mm. I would presume the cocaine was for the mornings and the opium was for the evenings. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That makes sense, to be fair, don't it? Yeah, because, I mean, like, you imagine, like, trying to get a decision from Hitler, like, oh, what does Army Group Centre need to do? And he's like, oh, sorry, the Hitler's fucking deep in his trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just fucking barking at dogs at the moment. <laughs> but it sort of helps. It doesn't fully explain what, like, the geezer was a savage, like, but yeah. obviously he was also off his fucking tits constantly. And I guess, like, you know, it's also, like, um, maybe it's a stress response thing. Yeah. Yeah, more, you you look how much stuff the man puts on his own shoulder. It's like he's the president, he's the prime minister, he's personally assigning the steel like he's playing fucking Factorio or something. Yeah, like fucking even madness. a normal person would struggle under that amount of strain and and responsibility. Mm. And obviously, then you also believe the Jews are doing everything out to get you and. <laughs> Yeah, increasing like fucking bombs are raining down on your house and fucking not guys, man. But yeah, no, it's well, it's very well documented actually. But I'm surprised you don't know that much about it to be honest. I know about the amphetamine and I knew about like the yeah, end of the yeah. war that he's like a a show. I didn't know he was taking opium. Yeah, yeah, opium. And I didn't okay. know he was doing it this early, like yeah, even yeah. before. I got, I've got the date somewhere. What's for his personal doctor? Like how long he was. His physician for, but it's very early, earlier than you'd mm. expect. Um, hang on, you carry on for a bit, mate, because I'm gonna have to Google it. It's bugging me now that I, I can't remember. All right, so um, so where did we come to? Yes, yeah, so we said um, obviously aside from Hitler himself and his fucking mad habit, that the resources are scarce, and by 1937 the production for the military has basically flatlined. They're not hitting the targets. 1937 is the only year the Nazis are in power where there isn't like a growth on growth of military uh, production. The military high command are advising Hitler, do not use force in the future. We're not going to be able to um, have a strong enough army to actually be able to use military force as a serious option. But Hitler, he has like a real gambling instinct. And maybe this is the cocaine talk. 
<laughs> yeah, it could be, to be fair. Couldn't it? it could be the fucking... Could be any of them talking. <laughs> but Hitler has always, like, this gambling instinct. Like, roll the dice, let's go. And he, like, there's a real thing of bluffing people out. And it works from a lot. So he thinks the opposite. He thinks other people outside Germany don't un- know the extent of the problem. They, you know, he can do these various propaganda tricks to make the military appear stronger. And also, he can use the kind of the threat and the tension. So the more he creates, more he creates like world tension, to use Hearts of Iron terminology. <laughs> the more he can tell the German people, we are in danger, the French are going to come for us. Do you want to be like the 1920s when the French army rolled in? Mm. And that can justify more mobilization of the economy. Like, of course, you have to give up your cars and your radios. We could be attacked by the French at any minute. Oh, no, no, they had radios, remember? They had radios. They yeah. had radios. <laughs> but so he sees, like, the opportunity in the fact of escalating the tensions that he can use that to mobilize the economy more and more and more. Mm. Actually, that's, I think that's kind of a thing Hearts of Iron does very well at representing. Yeah. Almost everything else, very bad, but like for this specific thing. Yeah. And so we've already mentioned, like, he's kind of butting heads with the heads of the military. The two main guys are, I've already mentioned a few times, Werner von Blomberg, who is the Minister of War. I love his name, Blomberg. Von Blomberg. And another Werner, Werner von Fritsch, who is like the head of the army. And as you can tell from like those names, they're both like Prussian aristocrats, they're very old school. They're Quite, they're you know the German nationalists, but they're quite concerned by Hitler and his risk taking. I was going to say I don't know this name, Fritz. I, I feel like von Fritsch. Yeah, von Fritsch. If he was the head of the army, you know how much love military shit like. Mm. Why do I not know his name? So, 1937, Hitler has got fucked off with a pair of them. Yeah, they've told him. <laughs> it's always they told him, going into Austria is a bad idea. But he backed down. They're telling him future aggression against Austria or Czechoslovakia it's very bad we're not going to fight the French everything is not good Hitler gets fucked off with this and he looks for reasons to get rid of them what he gets though is von Blomberg has done a very interesting thing von Blomberg has married a younger woman who it turns out had been posing for pornographic pictures before she married him Mm. Yeah, good quality nineteen thirties. Are they available online? Probably. www.vonblomberg.com X Blomberg. X Blombergs. X Blombergcams.com. Subscribe to his OnlyFans. Just a woman, like, raising her dress above her ankle, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, what is porn of the 1930s? Because that is... That's a lot of ankle showing, I'd imagine. There's a lot of ankle w- showing and maybe a neck. I would imagine there's a lot of pubic hair if you've got nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> shitloads of it. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> so, anyway, so, like... Uh, von Blomberg's enemies, like I think Goebbels is the one leading the charge on this, find out about these pornographic pictures and they're like, you've disgraced the German army, you've brought shame, you need to resign. Oh, okay. Werner von Fritsch, he is single and they're like, ah, he must be gay. 
And they're like, okay, we're going to blackmail you about your gayness. And he's like, but I'm not gay. And they're like, yeah, well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm blackmailing you. And they blackmail him to leave, do they? Yeah. And they blackmail both of them. Von Blomberg resigns to protect his pornography producing wife. Werner von Fritsch is essentially blackmailed out with like fake evidence showing that he's homosexual. And basically, Hitler is able to remove the opposition at the top of the army. And he makes himself commander in chief of the armed forces. So he takes that like top military position and gives it to himself. Okay. So at this point now, there is no longer an opposition that can form in the German army to him. It's no longer like he has to appease them. You know, back in 1934, he was told, get rid of the brown shirts or the army will get rid of you. That's no longer going to be a possibility now. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get into that the soldiers stop swearing loyalty to Germany or to follow the law and they swear obedience to Hitler personally. Mm. Well, the greeting becomes like Heil Hitler, doesn't it? It's like yeah, yeah. that's a greeting to sell out to each other. They praise the leader. Yeah, just as a normal thing, like between two Germans, if you meet, you're supposed to greet each other by say, you know, making your commitment to the leader. And just imagine how fucking creepy that must be on a daily basis. But like that's people... what it's like in North Korea. I know oh, we ain't got no North Korean listeners, so we'll work out we can slag them off if we want. I was going to say it's like probably a bit different because like no one in North Korea, unless they're like what. Actually, no, North Korea has never had experience of democratic rule because it went from Japanese colony to North Korea. Uh, Whereas, like, people in 1937 or 1938, they're like, five years ago, we were a democracy, and now I'm greeting my friends by saying Heil Hitler. Yeah. Can you imagine if you have to be like Heil Sunak when we meet? Oh, well, I wish. Heil Rish. Yeah. yeah, good point, man. Imagine how weird that must be, and like oh, for people f- fully aware, and that just being okay as well. Like, what would? Because you don't know who's going spirit. Like, yeah, it's mad, isn't it? You know, it's like okay, maybe I don't believe this, and maybe you don't believe in that, but I don't know if you don't believe in it. So mm. I'm not going to. Because if you don't, I'm going to get thrown in jail. Yeah, it's risky, and this is a thing the Nazis do on like a, a scary level is. People would just internalise like the impression. Yeah. So by this point then, Hitler has removed all opposition, basically. Political opposition, long gone. Democracy, long gone. Internal Nazi resistance, the left wing of the Nazi party, gone. Now, he has consolidated all the leadership positions on himself. The army is loyal to him personally. Now Hitler really has the freedom to do what he wants to do and there's less and less voices saying, don't do that. And within a few months, we get into the spring of 1938, and suddenly, Austria is back on Hitler's mind. On the 11th of March 1938, the uh, chemical company IG Farben receives telephone instructions to fill all petrol stations in Bavaria and on the Czech border. Hitler sends an ultimatum to Austria on annexation with Germany. Basically, join Germany or we will force you into Germany. Mm. The new Chancellor, a guy named Schusnig, and remember his predecessor murdered by Nazis, (coughs) he knows where the score is. 
his response is that he calls for a referendum on Austrian independence. A referendum union with Germany or an independent Austria. The referendum was to take place on the 13th. So literally a referendum two days after he announces the need for it. In The Wages of Destruction, Adam Tooze says that the evidence suggests that independence probably would have won. You know, people can see what Germany's going. Okay, a lot of nationalists want to join Germany at any cost in Austria. But people can see, like, we also quite like, you know, not being a Nazi totalitarian state. Yeah. Hitler decides to take the question off the table. The Wehrmacht launches a shock invasion with support inside Austria from those from those Nazi supporters. The Austrian government has no time to react. Before the time they realise they're under attack, the German army is already in Vienna. Oh, so they didn't actually have a referendum in the end? No. Hitler jumps in. I thought they did. Would, there was a referendum later on organised by the Nazis, and this one's really famous because they had these ballot papers and it says something like, do you want the bright future in the German Reich? And it has, like, in the middle of the paper, it has, yeah, yes, huge circle. And then down at the bottom left corner, it's like, nine. <laughs> it's, like, the most biased ballot paper you've ever seen. I yeah. think that's going to be the episode out if we can find a copy. Nice. So he used, he uses the, the referendum later to justify the action, but Germany has already seized control before the referendum happens. Now, by taking over Austria... Germany gains an extra 8% more of the total size of the economy. Austria is relatively poor and backward, so that only represents a 4% increase in total industry. How was it when it was like the main part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire? It wasn't. It was oh. the the economic heart of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was what is now the Czech Republic. Oh, okay. Well, the factories and the industry were in the Czech lands. Not in Austria proper. Austria proper is like really, for the most part, it's like mountains and like unfarmable land and stuff. Okay. Apart from Vienna itself, it's like backward. So they gain 4% industry, but what they get is 40% more of a total of unemployed workers. This is a good thing. Like Germany by this point, because of all this expansion of the industrial base, for the military industrial, they're running short on unemployed people to get into the factory, so having an extra 40% unemployed, great. More people to go into the military and uh, industrial. Even better, Austria has extensive iron mines. That thing which has been, you know, the, the, the choke point, the bottleneck on German steel production, now there's the Austrian mines available, which mm-hmm. big, gets quickly shuffled into the Reichswerk, Hermann Goering. I was going to say that then, yeah, I bet he snapped them <laughs> while kick then, eh? He got on right quick there. smart. <laughs> it's like when they bring out, you know, like the prawn sandwich buffet <coughs> and Gerving's out like... <laughs> yeah, and scooping them all in the fat <laughs> geezer. And even better, from Hitler's point of view, is Austria has lots of foreign currency reserves because it has a normal economy. It's not doing this weird... Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. militarisation. Yeah, so they, they, they were trading quite freely, weren't they? Yeah, with everybody. Okay. So they gain an extra 782 million Reichsmark, which is more than 100% of Germany's existing capital. Fuck, okay. Yeah. Without Anschluss, Germany is not in a position to uh, carry on its foreign policy goals. Wow. It would not have been able to arm in the same way. 
They're able to kind of steal Austria's place in international trade. So a lot of southeastern Europe, the former Austrian Empire, is still like very economically integrated. A bit like a French-speaking Africa is still integrated with France, right? Mm-hmm. So they're able to absorb Austria's place. So Hungary goes from having 26% of imports from Germany to 44%. Yugoslavia from 32 to 43%. The countries in southeastern Europe now will have a serious problem to oppose Germany at any point. And as a final point, this is a disaster for Czechoslovakia. The Czechs, like we said, is a highly complex, highly developed industrial economy, and they just lost their primary source of iron ore. Mm. And now the, the, che- the heartland of Bohemia is surrounded on three sides by Germany. Not just so that, the entire border region is also full of Germans. Also that. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. We're going to talk about the move from the Anschluss, and we're going to talk about uh, where Hitler really starts ramping up outside of what people could kind of accept and justify, and how we destroy Czechoslovakia. Nice. Nice little roundup there, bruv. I think the takeaway from that is that um, all this was just built on nothingness. The same as last time. It's all fake, isn't it? Like, all yeah. this, they're just like making nothing out of nothing. It's not sustainable. They have... It was very much that attitude of we're going to war and I don't care because if we win, we can pay for it all anyway. Yeah, because he's obviously got these goals set, these massive goals set, and then if we lose, well, we've lost anyway. Same as Germany Mobile One. Yeah, exactly like that. It's yeah, exactly like they're just shuffling around, nothing. Yeah, all of this money and spending and building to produce stuff that ultimately has no value or import or anything. And this is why I think it's like a thing to keep in mind every episode of this series is Hitler did not give a fuck about the life or the quality of living of the average German. He mm. cared about moving lines on a map. Yeah. And he cared about persecuting the Jews. Those two things that only things Hitler cares about. I think he cares about cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're drinking a drink then, mate. Van, can you imagine Hitler when he's like proper on it like just yeah. hype of just chatting shit <laughs> listen to some of that I don't know what would they be listening to then not Baroque it's not that old but uh... Hitler loved Wagner like okay. a like really heavy German opera okay imagine tripping balls on cocaine to that you're like just playing the same aria on repeat fly into it <sighs> I love this bit <laughs> I'm sure I've been listening to this up for four days now. As it slept. <laughs> nice, nice, nice wrap up, bro. Yeah, I appreciate that. I feel that's been some heavy stuff this session. A lot, a lot of information. I appreciate it. That's been uh, that's good. Yeah, I think that's kind of the main takeaway from today's episode is really how things escalated mm. on a massive scale. Like everything got kind of. From, okay, this is an extreme version of where we were with the Weimar Republic to, like, now we're just balls out, balls to the wall, building military, and the, no breaks, no step back, we want a war. When we talk about the military as well, the the like the SS uniform, it's really stylish, isn't it? Mm. Because it was, it was designer. 
You know what I mean? Like all these, like Hugo, was it Hugo Boss that designed it? Hugo Boss didn't design it, Hugo Boss produced it. Produced it, yeah. Like they seem to care about the style a lot. Like I was saying earlier on with the tanks, yeah. they look cool. All the tanks look really cool and cutting edge, and like the uniform, when you think about like the SS uniform, it's really like cutting edge, like design, you know, it looks cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has to have been like a, a driving force to the, the production. It's of them. like literally, especially the SS, like there was um, a cinema style called German Expressionism in the 20s, and it's. It's all like black and white films, but some of them are still really good. There's uh, the captain, the cabinet of Dr. Cagliari is a fantastic film. I highly recommend. Really? Um, uh, it's really good. It's it's from the twenties inside, but it's like it's so like the design and stuff is like really like it's really cool. It's really cool. I the story I makes no fucking of. sense, but it's just like it's so fucking out there in the way it looks is like okay. you know you think of like 1920s like whoa it's someone falling over and stuff and yeah. this is all like fucking weird abstract like fucking painted backgrounds and okay. shit anyway but they deliberately copied the style of like the villains in this expressionist like abstract avant-garde cinema into the ss uniforms they made themselves look like the bad guys okay and then it's like, I mean, it changed like the way that we in the West perceive what evil and the bad guys look like. You're like, mm. you know, Star Wars, they're, they're wearing Nazi uniforms most of the time. Yeah, yeah, they are literally up there. Fucking hell. Right then, I suppose we should wrap it up, I guess. Yeah, uh, so thank well, you very much for listening. important things we need to tell them on yes. Twitter and that. You remember, you go for it, bro. I don't remember them all. Yeah, so uh, if you've enjoyed what we've done on this episode and you like our episodes, please like, rate, review us on your uh, platform of choice. Please tell your friends about us, your family, your beloved elderly relatives, your online friends that you've never met. Please let them know about our show, anyone you think might enjoy it. Oh, uh, enable push notifications as well on your phone because then when we release it on Sunday, you'll get a little ding on your phone. It'll tell you that we have released a new episode. Yes, make sure you're subscribing to us. Um, if you'd like to see the random shit that we put on social media, you can follow us at Makers X. of History on X. It's officially Twitter. called X now, I think. I think officially it's called X. The website URL is still Twitter. Is it? So, okay. Um, I mean, it's probably going to be property of the US government by the time this episode goes mm. out, given the whole like Starlink issue. Yeah, that's mad, that is. I don't really understand what's going on, because I find him hilarious normally, but I'm, I'm a bit confused. But what has he done anything wrong? Because I know Putin's like, said he's a good guy, but I don't know why he said that. Like, I don't understand the story. Yet. Um, the gist of it is, and it's a little bit confused, because multiple different versions have gone out, literally from the same people with different versions. Mm. But uh, Starlink exists over Ukraine. Yeah. The version that was initially put out is that the Ukrainians wanted to use their new secret underwater drones no one had ever seen before to strike the Russian Black Sea Fleet in port in Sevastopol in occupied Crimea. And Elon Musk found out about this in oh. some way and turned Starlink Sorry, man, dog's bark, yeah. yeah, no worries. Then a slightly corrected version came out and said, actually, no, there wasn't coverage of Crimea and the Ukrainians asked him to turn it on and he said no. I think that seems unbelievable because you might remember a while back these 
new Ukrainian underwater drones just turned up, washed ashore. And it's like, you wouldn't have released them if you didn't know you were going to have the coverage, if you were relying on it. So yeah. I suspect that he turned it off. And it turns out he spoke to... It's also, again, it's differed who he spoke to. Was it a high-ranking Russian official or was it Putin personally? Both versions exist. Who told him, yes, if there is an attack on Crimea, we will start a nuclear war. And he forced Ukraine to back down because of that. So it's all a bit murky exactly what's mm. happened, but I would say it's basically the Russians have got to him, put the frighteners on, like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to be a nuclear war. And he's gone, oh, shit, really? Okay, oh, I better stop that. Yeah. Because, you know... But it's the, it's the problem of, like, Musk is super involved in this, and it's, I think it's a thing... The man has literally zero background in international relations or politics or anything. And it's, I think it's yeah, he has where, a lot like, of power in the situation because they're relying on his Starlink technology. He has a lot of power, but he just also doesn't understand like concepts like nuclear bluffing because mm. he has no background in that. So why would he? Yeah, good point. So yeah, that's <laughs> a slight, slight uh, sideline, but that's roughly what happened with that. Yeah. So. Nice. Um, right. We'll leave it there then. I think we've covered Twitter. We've covered all that. Subscribe and like. Any any more info, Ross? Are we good? Oh yeah, if anyone has yet figured out why Hitler's second book didn't get published, you can let us know at wearemakersofhistory at gmail.com. If you have any fun drug Hitler-related stories or any information, uh, if you know exactly when Hitler started his drug habit, and you can reach us at wearemakersofhistory Oh, he met his doctor in 1936, I found, but I didn't find exactly where... So that's when they first met in thirty six. That's where I got that date from. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see exactly when he started his drug habit. So if you know about there. Hitler's drug habit, let us know. All right, I think we're good. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, yeah, I'm fucking clanging in my hand there in the background, Ross. I ain't gonna start again. We might as well just fucking carry on with it. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs>